0: I've been asked uh, to speak on our holy God, and they have even assigned a text to me, which uh, I, I embrace. And so, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, and I don't know that we could have a conference on the holiness of God without one of us addressing this signature text in the Bible that really rises from the landscape of Scripture almost like a Mount Everest as it makes known to us in a very powerful way the holiness of God. I want to begin by reading the text, reading the passage and setting it in front of you, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, whoa, is me for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. In these verses, we read about Isaiah's dramatic encounter with the holiness of God. Isaiah knew God before this encounter. But now he knows God with a depth and a breadth and a height and a length that he has not yet known God. He now is knowing God in ways that he had not previously known. Oh, he knew God was holy, but not like this nothing could have been more important to Isaiah than for him to gain this deeper knowledge of the holiness of God. And for the rest of his life, his entire ministry would flow out of this encounter with the holiness of God. It would set its mark on Isaiah, and he would never be the same again. He is being taken to the next level of spiritual development and and growth because he has come now face-to-face with the holiness of God. It was my privilege to have known and served with the late R.C. Sproul. And he shared with me that in the early years of Ligonier's ministry, as it was growing and blossoming at such a rapid pace. That they had to bring in a consultant to help them think through where this ministry is headed and where it needs to, to be. And so, the consultant said, I want to ask you two questions. Question number one, what is the greatest need of the church? Sproul immediately answered, The greatest need of the church is to know who God is. Second question, what is the greatest need in the world today? Without any hesitation, Sproul immediately said, the greatest need of the world is to know who God is. Everything flows out of the knowledge of God. A.W. Tozer wrote years ago, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. It shapes everything about you. It shapes your prayer life. It shapes your worship. It shapes your evangelism. It shapes the decisions that you make. It, it shapes your, your walk with the Lord. In one way or another, everything is pulsating from your knowledge of God. And according to this passage, What should immediately come to your mind the moment that you think of God, first and foremost, is the holiness of God. And so, I want us to walk through this passage, this encounter that Isaiah had with the holiness of God. And I want to say to every one of us here tonight, we all must have a similar encounter with the holiness of God. Not like Isaiah has where he is caught up in this vision, but through pages of Scripture for us to go deeper and deeper in our understanding of the profundity of the holiness of of God. It will revolutionize your Christian life. You'll never be the same again. So let's walk through this passage. May may God use this tonight to stir our hearts in ways perhaps we've not yet been stirred. I want you to note first the crisis, that's how this passage begins, the crisis. In verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, this was a national crisis that shook the people to the core of their being. Uzziah has been king for over half of a century. He assumed the throne of Judah at age 16, and he has been on the throne for 52 years. And God has wonderfully blessed. It's been a time of economic boom and military buildup and construction of of facilities, and the nation has has prospered. And as long as Uzziah is on the throne, things are going very well. But there came a time in Uzziah's life when he became drunk with his own success and pride entered into his heart. And he was determined that he would go where only the priests could go, that he would go into the temple, and they tried to stop him, but he pushed him aside, and he bolted his way in, and God struck him with leprosy. And he would soon die. And so, now the throne of of Judah is empty. And it was a time of mourning and uncertainty. And it was in this crisis that Isaiah sought the Lord, perhaps as he has never sought the Lord. It drove Isaiah to his knees. It crippled him. It pulled the rug out from underneath him, and he is driven now to seek the Lord. It is amazing how God uses a crisis in our lives to awaken us in our pursuit of God. We thrive spiritually far more in times of adversity than in times of prosperity. And it is times of crisis in our own lives, whether it be a financial crisis, whether it be a family crisis, whether it be a a career crisis, maybe it's a a health crisis, whatever it is, but it brings our life to to a standstill, to a halt, and it drives us to seek the Lord. Maybe you are in such a time like this tonight. And if so, it is a mercy of God in your life to use this to bring you deeper and deeper to Himself. James 1, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what's going on in Isaiah's life. Perhaps that's going on in your life tonight. This leads to the confrontation. The crisis leads to the confrontation. As Isaiah will now experience God in a way that he had never expected, he he will see God as he has never seen God before, in the year that King Uzziah died, here it is. I saw the Lord. How he saw God, we're not entirely certain, but some type of divinely inspired, divinely imposed vision. He's given spiritual eyes to see into the invisible world of heaven, and he saw the Lord. He he saw Adonai, the sovereign one sitting on a throne. In this greatest of all crisis that Isaiah has ever experienced, he is allowed to see into the throne room, into the inner sanctum of, of the palaces of, of glory. He, he is caught up outside of himself and allowed to see what, what no man can see I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, seated, presiding, ruling, reigning. Judah's throne is empty, it is vacated. Heaven's throne is occupied, and God is totally, sovereignly in control. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the crisis, just like He is tonight over our lives, seated on a throne, verse one, lofty, meaning high and lifted up and exalted, towering over heaven and earth, elevated above all earthly circumstances, the Most High God, no one His equal, no one His peer. In the organizational chart of the entire universe, at the very apex, there is God, and everyone and everything is under God." Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115 verse 3, the Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And then he sees with the train of his robe filling the temple. The greatness of ancient kings was was. Revealed by the the length of the train of their robe. And there would be a competition between kings in different regions as they would come into their throne room. That the greater the king and the greater the, the empire that he ruled over, the longer would be his train. As Isaiah now sees into heaven's throne room, he sees the train of his robe of his robe, filling the entire temple. There's no room for anyone else, no room for any rival. He is king alone, unrivaled in his sovereignty, supreme in his authority, no panic in glory. We too must see God for who He truly is. Heaven and earth is not being run by a democracy, but by a theocracy, by the will of one, by the rule of one. Divine sovereignty means that God does as He pleases, where He pleases, when He pleases, with whom He pleases, how He pleases. He doesn't ask for permission, He gives it. He is ruling and reigning, Isaiah sees, presiding and governing, commanding and controlling, determining and directing, and He is still upon His throne. There are no term limits, no impeachment proceedings, never removed from office. He is the one who was and who is and who shall be forever, Psalm 90 verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God." This is what Isaiah saw. This is what you and I must see yet again tonight. Now third, note the chorus, beginning in verse 2, as Isaiah is caught up into this vision of God. He he sees above the throne another extraordinary sight, seraphim. It's a special order of angelic beings. Uh, Their their name literally means the burning ones, that they are on fire for God. There, There is a fiery passion and a burning intensity about them in their devotion to God, they are zealous for God's glory. And they are full of energy to, to worship God. There's no lukewarmness in heaven. There is no apathy whatsoever. And we learn from this that those who are the closest to God are those who are on fire for God. And those who are lukewarm and apathetic are those who are the furthest away from God. Isaiah begins to describe further what he sees with the seraphim, seraphim each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. Because they're totally unable to look directly into the full, blazing, blinding glory of God. God. If they were to see God face to face in the immediate presence of God, they would burn up like a cinder. This is a blinding sight, like staring into 10,000 suns in the sky above. They cover their face, and with two, he covered his feet. It's an expression of utter unworthiness. To appear before God. It's an expression of total humility and lowliness of mind, like Moses at the burning bush to remove his sandals, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. I mean, this kind of proximity to God, you must cover your feet. And with two, he flew two wings, just like hummingbirds ready to, to, to dart and to, to do the will of God. As soon as the word would be spoken from the lips of God, those words would no longer be in the air, but they would be departing from glory and descending down into this world to carry out the work that would be assigned to them. Verse 3 and 1, one of the seraphim Called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This back and forth and Timphonal praise. One side of heaven saying, Holy, holy, holy. The other side of heaven saying, Is the Lord of hosts? Back and forth, back and forth, day and night, forever and ever. Holy, holy, holy. It's repeated three times. What is the significance of this? It is raising the holiness of God to the superlative degree. Well, what this means is they are saying, God, you are holy you are holier. You are the holiest being in the entire universe. You are supreme in your holiness. You are complete and perfect in your holiness. And what does this mean, the holiness of God? It comes from a Ancient Semitic word that means to cut. There's a separation because there's been a cut. And God now is set apart from all of the works of his hands. Tom Pennington mentioned various aspects of this, and I want to piggyback on what he has said, but I want you to think of this holiness of God on on four levels. First of all, there's positional holiness, that God is transcendent, that God is high and lifted up, that God is majestic, that God is regal and royal and kingly, and he is Above us, above and beyond us, He is a cut above us. And this positional holiness refers to the sum and the substance of all that God is. In essence, it is the wholeness of God and the holiness of God such that He is totally distinct from us, that He vastly exceeds all comparisons. Left to ourselves, we could never climb a ladder of good works or religiosity to come up to His level, to even enter into His presence, because he is so far above us. This is positional holiness. And then, second, there is moral holiness that he is entirely sinless. He is ethically pure. He is flawless, without spot or blemish. He's perfect in his being, perfect in his thoughts, perfect in his decisions perfect in His ways. He never needs a redo. He he never needs a second chance to get it right. Everything from the very beginning is flawlessly perfect in His character, in His being, and everything that proceeds forth from His being. And third, there is judicial holiness that God rewards righteousness, and He condemns unrighteousness. Habakkuk 1 verse 15 says that He takes no pleasure and there is no approval of evil with Him. He condemns every sinner, and He rewards every saint. And fourth, there is his emotional holiness. That he loves righteousness. He loves everything that conforms to his own being. And he hates sin. And he hates sinners in their sin. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Around the throne of God, they are not crying out, love, love, love. They're not singing, mercy, mercy, mercy. They're not saying, wrath, wrath, wrath. Though God is love and God is mercy and God is wrath, They're crying out, holy, 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 that is the sum and the substance of all that God is. And when we fast forward to Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, and the apostle John is caught up into the very same palace, what does he see? What does he hear? He hears the very same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of heaven and earth who was and who is and who shall be forever, unchanging in His holiness every attribute of God is holy. His love is holy love. His mercy is holy mercy. His wrath is holy wrath. His Son is the Holy One of Israel. His Spirit is the Holy Spirit His Word is the Holy Scriptures. His temple is the Holy Temple. His land is the Holy Land. Jerusalem is the Holy City. His covenant is the Holy Covenant. We His people are a holy nation. Everything related to God is holy. And then the angels cry out, the whole earth, the whole earth is full of His glory. Glory, this refers to His intrinsic glory which is, again, the alpha and the omega of of all that God is. His glory is the outshining of His holiness. When Moses said, show me your glory, Exodus 33, verse 18, God put His holiness on display. This is the chorus that they're singing in heaven 24-7, 365 days a year throughout all of the ages to come and it will take all eternity future for us to begin to even scratch the surface of properly declaring the holiness of God. This leads in verse 4 to the convulsions. It's a terrifying thing to be in the presence of holy God even heaven itself begins to shake verse 4 and the and the foundations of the thresholds trembled all of heaven is rocking and reeling and swaying and tottering as the angels are crying out the holiness of God. Listen, this is not a casual worship service in heaven. This is not a cool, contemporary worship service in heaven. The foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him, one of the seraphim, who called out while the temple was filling. With smoke spewing through the corridors of glory into the throne room is this glory cloud manifesting the holiness of God. Whenever people in the Bible came close to the holiness, of God, they shook like a leaf in a storm. The Apostle John on the island of Patmos, in chapter 1, he sees the vision of the glorified Christ and how does he respond? He fell at His feet like a dead man. That is to say, he fainted and went unconscious and just collapsed at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember when Peter was told to cast the net on the, other side, of the, fi- uh, the other, other side of the boat after they'd been fishing all night and had caught nothing, and Jesus said, cast your net on this side, and they finally did, and there were so many fish that the nets began to break and the boats began to sink, and it dawns on Peter, I'm in the presence of holy God incarnate And he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I I can't even be close to you. You're so holy. Listen, if Jesus Christ, right now in His glorified state, those back doors swung open and He came walking down this center aisle, every single one of us would be on the carpet, scared spitless. We in our natural state, we in our mere mortal body, He in His glorified resurrection body with, with hair like, like wool and His eyes like flaming fire and His voice like the sound of many waters and coming out of His mouth a sharp two-edged sword and His feet glowing like standing in a furnace, We would be overwhelmed not one of us would approach Him. We too would cover our feet. This is the convulsions of being in the immediate presence of Holy God. And I wonder what God thinks about some worship services where there is no fear of God." This leads to verse 5, the conviction. How does Isaiah respond? He responds as you and I would respond, to be in the presence of holy God reveals all of our unholiness. As we heard in the first message, God is light in Him, there is no darkness at all. It is the light that reveals the flaws and the imperfections in us. Verse 5, then I said, woe, He has been pronouncing woe on the nation in the previous chapter. We don't have time to to walk through Isaiah chapter five, but woe, 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 woe upon this nation for its for its drunkenness, for its its greed. And and Isaiah has been pronouncing woe upon the nation. Now look at this. Woe is me. Woe is a passionate cry of grief and despair. Isaiah is saying, judged am I. He says, for I'm ruined. And the word ruined here is a Hebrew word that means to to cease to exist, to be cut off, to be destroyed, to perish. You know what Isaiah is thinking? I'm going to die. I'm in the immediate presence of holy God. I'm going to die. No one can live through this experience. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. We would say, wait a minute, Isaiah, that's the best thing about you. You're a prophet. Your lips are the mouthpiece for God. Isaiah would say to us, you don't know my heart, and you don't know my mind, and you don't know my attitudes, and you don't know my reactions. To be in the presence of holy God exposes us for who we are, Isaiah is now painfully aware of his own sin. and there's no place to hide. And now he suddenly sees the nation in a new light. He sees culture in a new light. He sees society in a new light, and he says, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We're all polluted and defiled. Why would he come to this conclusion? At the end of verse 5, for, here's the explanation, for my eyes have seen the King, the King. Not Uzziah, but Yahweh. My eyes have seen the King. And one gaze At this king, I am naked and undone. Again, it's the one who is the closest to God, has the greatest sensitivity to sin. And comes under the greatest conviction, the quickest. And it's the one who's furthest away, is numb to his sin. This leads in verse 6 to the cleansing. And in this moment of confessing his sin, Isaiah found grace, forgiving grace, pardoning grace. Verse 6, then, and that word then is very important, meaning as soon as he confesses his sin, then, immediately, at that moment, there's no probationary period before God dispenses His grace. Then, without any waiting, then one of the seraphim flew to me. What a vision this is that he is seeing! This seraphim flying across the, the floor of the temple of God in, in glory flew to me with a burning coal which he had, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. You know what Isaiah is thinking? I am now a dead man walking. He's going to torch me. I don't deserve to live. I'm a sinner. God is holy. He's pulled back the veil and allowed me to see God so that I now see myself as I've never seen myself to such a degree. And so, this seraphim is flapping its, its two of its wings and flying across the corridors of, of, of glory with a burning coal. And what Isaiah will come to discover is that this burning coal is symbolic of the pardoning, forgiving grace of God. Verse, uh, verse 7, he touched my mouth with it. Oh, your lips are so sensitive. You, you, your lips are so easily inflicted with pain. But it was with the mouth that Isaiah has sinned, not in conveying God's message. in backroom talk, when others are not listening and only a small group is there, and his criticism, perhaps slander, his casual talk about God, perhaps even taking God's name in vain. No, the lips are the mechanism By which the sin has come out of his polluted soul. He touched my mouth with it. This speaks to how painful repentance is, and how painful it is to come under the searchlight of the holiness of God. And to go through this agonizing process, which is necessary to be forgiven by holy God. No one giggles when they repent, no one skips into the presence of God to make matters right. It is a severe mercy. And he says, behold, verse 7, this has touched your lips, and there may have been even smoke come from those lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your depravity, your guilt is now removed. Even as a believer, he must confess his sin. Even as a believer, he must repent of his sin. Just like you and I must be lifelong repenters and lifelong confessors of our sin, you say, how often do I need to confess my sin as soon as you are made aware of it? by a guilty conscience or the conviction of the Holy Spirit, immediately confess that sin to God. And then he says, and your sin is forgiven. Your translation may say, your sin is atoned for, and that's what the word forgiven here, meaning there is a covering over your sin and God cannot now see your sin in a judicial way. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you sin? do you have sin to confess? Do you have sin of which you must repent? Do you have sin that you need to come before God and confess that sin? Isaiah did because he saw the holiness of God. Forgiveness is full, it is complete, it is undeserved, it is not based upon our merit, it is free apart from any human works, it is immediate without delay, and it is final, irrevocable. Never to be dredged up again from the depths of the sea where God has placed it. Finally, in verse 8, the commission. Now, for the first time in this vision, God speaks. To this point, Isaiah has seen God. To this point, Isaiah has heard the seraphim. To this point, he's felt the burning coal. To this point, he has heard the seraphim say, your sins are forgiven. But Isaiah has not yet heard from God until now. Everything in his proper order. Verse 8, then, there's that word again, then, immediately, at that very moment, as, as soon as the sin is confessed, it is forgiven, and as soon as it is forgiven, I heard the voice of the Lord. I heard Adonai, the sovereign one, speak directly to me. whom shall i send and who will go for us this is not a question by which god is seeking answers for that which he does not know god is omniscient he knows everything from the beginning to the end god never learns anything no this is a a a diagnostic question for 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 Isaiah, to, to probe the mind and the soul and the heart of Isaiah, that this is the, the mercy of, of God and the, the grace of God for Isaiah to hear this. There's a sense in which Isaiah is back in the ball game. He's restored. He's forgiven. Whom shall I send, singular, and who will go for us, plural, perhaps an allusion to the Trinity, one God, three persons, who will go for us, who will take the message to the nation, who will tell the people of my holiness, who will be used by me as an instrument This tells us Isaiah is now usable in the hands of a holy God, that God will not be using unholy vessels who are stubborn in their procrastination to confess their sin and to repent of their sin and to come clean with God. God will bypass the gifted in order to use the godly. God is more concerned about your maturity than He is about your ministry. God is more concerned about who you are than what you do. God is more concerned. About your heart than your hands. But now, Isaiah has a clean heart. Now he has a pure heart. The sin has been flushed out and taken away. Isaiah's response. Then, immediately, in this moment, Isaiah does not say, I want to go home and pray about it. Isaiah does not filibuster God. This demands an immediate response now, this moment. Delayed obedience is no obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Faith without works is dead. How will Isaiah respond? This is his moment with God. This may be your moment with God tonight. Then I said, and no one else can answer for Isaiah. No one else can step in and give the response. Isaiah said, Here am I. Not here I am, that would indicate his location. Here am I indicates. His response. Here am I, indicates his availability. He presents himself to God, here am I, as a living and holy sacrifice which is acceptable to God, which is his spiritual service of worship. He places his life on the altar before God, just like you and I must, tonight, not tomorrow morning, tonight, He says, send me. Isaiah has no idea where he's going. There's no five-year plan given to him. There's no ten-year plan. You don't need to know where, you just need to know who, and that who is holy God. God will tell him in the rest of this chapter that this is going to be a demanding commission. You're going to preach to the nation, and you will be the means by which I will harden the hearts of my people and I will render th- you will render them in your preaching blind so they cannot see and deaf so they cannot hear. This is how you will glorify me. And so it came at a great price and a great cost for Isaiah. But you do not negotiate with holy God. You simply say, here am I send me. In essence, you take your life like a check and you sign your name and you hand it over to God for God to fill in the amount, what it will cost you to serve holy God. What Isaiah is saying is, I am ready to go and to serve you. Anywhere, anytime, to do anything at any price. That's where you need to be tonight. Whether you are in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, whether you are a senior adult, as long as you are on this earth... And as long as you are breathing, your response to God is, here am I, send me. That's where we must be tonight. So, I want to ask you this question as I close. Have you experienced the holiness of God like this? Because... When you have, it brings you to this place. If you're not at this place, it's because you have not yet seen the holiness of God. That you've not yet said, woe is me. That you have not yet said, Lord, take away my sin, and when you see the holiness of God, that is the only response you can have. Here am I, send me. Let us pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, We have no merit of our own to enter into Your presence, apart from being clothed in His perfect righteousness, and to have our sins washed in the blood of the Lamb, and to be presented faultless before Your throne of grace. I pray that you would open our eyes to see you for who you truly are, not a caricature of our own imagination, but that we would see you high and lifted up, sitting on your throne, inhabiting the praises of your people, of your seraphim who are crying out, holy, holy holy. Lord, manifest Yourself to us even through this vision that was recorded 2,700 years ago. Make it real, make it fresh, make it immediate in our own hearts and lives. And as we go back to our hotels, as we go back to where we're staying, our homes, there needs to be within our hearts saying to you, woe, woe is me. I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips. We know you're a God of forgiveness and grace and pardon, and you will hear the repentant prayer of a broken sinner who's been made a saint. Clean out our hearts and our souls and our minds. Govern our tongues that we would be a holy instrument in your hand. Father, I pray this on behalf of all of us here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.